Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is The Athletic's Adam Crafton on his new podcast series, Away From Home, following Ukraine's Shakhtar Donetsk through Champions League while Russia's invasion of Ukraine rages on. Before we get going, subscribe to my writing site at grantwall.com. We are less than two weeks away from the start of World Cup 2022. And we have a one-time deal ending tomorrow, Tuesday. For one more day, you can subscribe for just $4.17 a month. Then the price goes up for the World Cup. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, my friend? Doing all right. We've got three podcast episodes for the World Cup starts. Oh my God. <laughs> it's crazy. It's here. It's happening. It is happening. And I've got so much I, I, going on. I made a list today of things to not forget when I'm packing, which I don't usually make lists. And this has caused me problems before. I don't know if you're like a fanatical packer, Witty, mm. but I, in, for Euro 2012, forgot to pack pants. <laughs> that seems like a material thing to forget. Mine, I, I always forget two things. One is a belt. I, I <laughs> will 100% of the time forget to travel with the belt. And the other is deodorant, which is oh, no. problematic. But I have made about a dozen trips to a 7-Eleven or similar convenience store within 12 hours of arrival because I've forgotten to pack that. So yeah, uh, I'm, I'm well familiar with this. Although I, I usually don't make a list. I sort of most if you're going to a developed country there's always like a CVS or a 7-Eleven or a Walgreens or in your case I don't know a gap <laughs> here's the problem in Poland and Ukraine for Euro 2012 I was so busy doing work mm. for Fox and for Sports Illustrated I never bought pants so did you wear shorts the whole time no I wore pants one my, the the pair of pants that I wore on the plane for the entire tournament grant really why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't should you? Should I be embarrassed? Go? I, I probably should be embarrassed to. I to mean, reveal I, I, this publicly. I, I, I presume you you uh, took him to a laundromat on several occasions. You're what? Did you? Can I take the fifth? <laughs> wow! I could. I couldn't imagine being so busy that I couldn't buy a pair of pants like that. You know, it's it's twenty minutes. Although, I, although is it though? I guess if you're in a foreign country and maybe do they have different sizes there? Is, you know, 34, 32 a common thing around the world? Are you buying a large or a medium? I mean, I guess buying pants is somewhat involved, but I just figured like there's got to be an equivalent of Marshalls somewhere in Ukraine, isn't there? I would like I would like to give credit to my Fox Sports crew that I traveled with for that entire month for Euro 2012, Keith Costigan and crew. Um, they did not disown me. They didn't banish me. I okay. think they were aware I wore one pair of pants the entire time. Here's the other thing. You're working on a television crew, presumably <laughs> a well-staffed television crew. You could have sent like a runner or a PA or a low-level producer to go run out and get you pants. So it, you, you are not the only person who could have gotten you pants. What kind of person do you think I am? I would delegate that type of something to to someone I mean, else and by the way we were not that staffed up. it was the old <laughs> days of the fox soccer channel and the fox oh, soccer report okay. when they were coming out of winnipeg with the nightly show <laughs> but okay but you travel with the producer right 
I wouldn't ask somebody to do that. I just should have done it myself, and I didn't, and I'm embarrassed now, and I probably shouldn't have brought this up. <laughs> I have so many more questions, but let's get to the soccer. <laughs> there was a lot going on soccer-wise this weekend, so let's start with the MLS Cup Final. And, I mean, for me, best MLS game I've ever seen, and you may have a different opinion. I'd like to hear it. LAFC wins on penalties after a wild 3-3 game in which... Gareth Bale for 10-man LAFC scores the equalizer in the 128th minute. Just think (laughs) of that. Just saying 128th minute seems so bizarre and otherworldly. But he did this, and that came after Philadelphia had gone ahead in the 123rd minute. And it looked like Philadelphia was going to win it uh, after things were crazy at the end of regulation, just to send it into extra time. And I mean, the, the, for me, the only other possible games that could qualify as best MLS game of all time are the one where Zlatan made his debut with LA Galaxy and scored multiple times to beat LAFC in his debut coming off the bench, which was amazing. And then there's a very famous playoff game in which the San Jose Earthquakes made up a huge deficit with the LA Galaxy in the old two-legged format. Um, uh, Landon Donovan with the Quakes at that point, mm. um, which I wrote a column about at the time of that's the best game in MLS history. And then maybe even the 96 final, the first year final was amazing, 3-2. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I I don't have the historical perspective that you do, presumably having seen the first 10 to 15 years. But I, in terms of recent MLS Cup finals, I know last year was incredibly dramatic. Yeah but it didn't have the same back and forth that this one had, the same sort of level of chaos. I I will never forget the noise that came out of Providence Park when Portland scored that equalizer. It's one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. But from a game standpoint, you're right. I I definitely go back to that LAFC, LA Galaxy game that Zlatan made his debut in. It's just sort of one of those build up the hype, live up to the hype. You remember sort of where you were when you watch that game. But this was absolutely staggering because, as you mentioned, there, there are so many talking points that come out of this. When you think of what LAFC have done in their first five years in the league, it's one of the best starts to a club in MLS history. I know that, I mean, when the league was first founded, someone was going to get off to a good start. A good start, And DC United was probably the, the team that carried the high watermark then. But in this MLS, when it's this hard to compete at a high level year after year, it's remarkable what they've done. Gareth Bale as a storyline is staggering when you consider how little he did in his time in LA for the first few months of it. It was really more of an albatross on the team in terms of you want to pick Gareth Bale as a world superstar, but he didn't really add very much. So you, in the end, start picking Denny Buanga and you know, Quadwo Poku and all these players that don't have nearly the pedigree that Gareth Bale does. And then he provides the very reason why you bring him into the team in the first place. You have a goalkeeper, which, you know, in my view, Jesus Murillo, not that you want to make him feel that guilty, but he cost Maxine Crepo his chance to go to the World Cup, which is yeah. pretty unfortunate when you consider how bad that injury was. In all likelihood, he's not starting for Canada, but you know Milan Borjan probably would have started for Canada, but Crepo would have been one of the three that went. And then the backup, John McCarthy, who former Philadelphia Union player, <laughs> bounced around at, at clubs like Rochester Rhinos. And I saw Thomas Floyd uh, on Twitter, a journalist at the Washington Post, had this great tweet. It says, only in MLS can a team with a title 
can a team win a title with an extra time equalizer from a former $111 million Real Madrid star and shootout heroics from an ex-member of the Rochester Rhinos and Ocean City Nor'easters? Long live MLS Cup was Thomas Floyd's tweet, and that was absolutely sensational and true. But it, it's it, you have all these things come together. The, the, the chaos of the game, it went to penalties. Philadelphia had truly terrible penalties. And it's just riddled with the kind of storylines that MLS, in, in my view, needs more of so that you can tell the full story of the game after it ends. There's just so much you could talk about. For me, Jose Martinez is such a chaotic player. He's such a like a, an MLS player, and he did everything positive and negative you could imagine in one <laughs> game. <laughs> it's so incredible. Yeah. You know, like... I, so he had the foul that led to the free kick for the first goal for LAFC. Totally unnecessary foul on his part, reckless. And then he gets the equalizer, creates the equalizer with a wild shot that ends up on the foot of Gazdag, <laughs> who, who finishes. And then it seemed like Jose Martinez was just everywhere in the middle of things. And chicken with his head cut off, like over pursuing a lot of times, but just also you cannot doubt his, his energy, his enthusiasm, the way he goes about his job. He's like the opposite of Shabby Alonzo. So Shabby <laughs> Alonzo was a guy who I remember interviewing for my book about being a defensive midfielder. And he was always like, I don't think you should ever have to slide tackle. Because if you're positioned well, you shouldn't ever have to do that. And Jose Martinez is like the opposite. <laughs> Just perpetually slide tackling people. Yeah, and, and, and he carries the Philadelphia ethos. He sort of is the player that sort of embodies what they wanted to do. You can tell in the production meeting with Fox that Jim Curtin told uh, the commentators, we want to ugly this one up early on. <laughs> and Jose Martinez is sent out with those instructions and they were delivered upon. Absolutely incredible. Um, and I mean, just, I, I like the fact that MLS has the final in one of the team's stadiums because the atmosphere looked incredible on TV, sounded incredible. I, can, I had friends texting me from the stadium saying, this is the best sporting event I've ever been to. Wow. Like, these are people who go to soccer games and other sports games fairly frequently. And so that type of thing... Um, it, it just, it, so many things came together in this to make it special. The fact you had the two number one seeds meeting in the final, the two best teams in the league all season, the fact that they both went toe to toe in this game. And it looked like at one point LA was going to win it in regulation and then Philly equalized. And then it looked like Philly was going to win it. And then LAFC somehow equalized down a man. By the way, what was, what's Crapo's injury, by the way? Is it a broken leg? I, I heard and read on Twitter that it was, you know, tibia, fibia in that realm, but I, I haven't seen an official diagnosis. But, I mean, you'd have to imagine it's keeping him out of the World Cup at least. I want to give Fox some credit here for not showing it because I think it's the, they made it sound like it was gruesome and that they were they made the very quick decision, sort of the anti-Christian Erickson decision to not show us what I think might have been a compound fracture, and I hate—I I want to speculate about stuff. So maybe he has doesn't have a compound fracture. Maybe, but like it sounded gruesome, and they made a very quick decision to not show it. And I remember growing up watching the Super Bowl when like Tim Crumry 
had a compound fracture of his leg and they showed the replay over and over again or when Joe Theismann Mm -hmm. had his leg broken by Lawrence Taylor. Kevin Ware at the final four. Yeah. And like, I don't want, I I don't want to see that. I, I, I don't, we don't need to see that. Yeah, I, I'm sort of of two minds there because I do think that sort of like if you're telling the story like almost journalistically, like you you have to sort of, you have to sort of here's why this happened. Like because I imagine a lot of people are at their televisions going, well, why is why is he down for nine minutes? Why is he being stretchered off? And if someone is making that decision, and maybe they I, I wasn't actually listening to the broadcast, but maybe they communicated that to the audience. Hey, we've seen this. It's gross. We don't want to show you we this. We don't need to see it over and over again. Correct. Uh, but uh, by the way, I just looked it up on Twitter. LAFC put out a statement actually about an hour before we recorded this uh, that he underwent successful surgery to repair a fracture of his right leg. So uh, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't go into the uh, into the gruesome details. But yeah, I mean, that that was a that was a hideous watch. And it actually set up that nine minutes of extra time where you see right. the two latest goals scored in MLS history because you wouldn't sort of see that in any other context. And it, it added to the drama, albeit is massively unfortunate for Craig Pope. Yeah. I, I, by the way, it was kind of cool that they had Crapo on the phone like, yeah. with Gareth Bale on the field after the game and celebrating in his press and, conference right. as well was, was FaceTiming with him. Um, so yeah. Uh, thoughts out to Maxime Crapo. Um, that's, that's an awful thing to go through um, and, and miss a world cup. Um, but uh, just an incredible game. Uh, and I, I was bummed out not to be there. It was fun to be with you on site in Portland last year. Lots of reasons why we weren't able to go this time. Um, but, uh, yeah, very well-deserved LAFC supporter shield champions, MLS cup champions. This is their season. And I'm curious to see how they do in champions league. You know, they've gotten to a final before under Bob Bradley. Uh, now that Seattle has broken the door down for MLS teams. I don't see any reason why this LAFC team, couldn't win champions league. I don't see any reason why they can't continue because they're, they're well set up for the future. Yeah. And I'll be curious how much they regime change because they have Carlos Vela who will enter the last year of his contract. We don't know what Gareth Bale's status is going into next year in terms of, uh, you know, going to the world cup and he sort of did what he needed to do in LA. Like if he goes to the world cup and sort of says, all right, I'm good then maybe he just retires after the season because he won a couple trophies. He could, but when he came, he talked about, I'm not just here for pre-World Cup. Like, I, I plan on coming back. But th- I, I think he, he changed. Well, he, I think he presumed that this would be pretty easy. I think he presumed <laughs> that he would come into the team, he'd be first choice in the team, and that, you know, he could, you know, just walk in and score seven goals and five assists in the second half of the season. And it didn't prove to be that. So, you know, if he wants to dig it out and try and, you know, earn for a place in the team. By the way, they have Buongo, they signed us a DP. They really didn't play Christian Teo that much, a player yeah. who's got some real pedigree um, that could potentially play on the wing positions for them. They have Opoku. They have so many players in those forward positions. So uh, I'll be curious how, how much they make changes. But the, the last point I wanted to make on this game was, for me, how much this game, I guess, pierced my soccer bubble. So normally uh, for for a game like this, you know, the soccer fans that I know in my life care about, you know, big Champions League games or big Premier League games. But this is one where even the non-soccer fan in my life was like, what the hell is going on here? A, a friend of mine who works in L.A. was super bummed that he couldn't get two tickets like for under a thousand dollars because oh, they wow. were that expensive to go. Also, I was kind of glad that everyone was in their seats on time for kickoff because there was a situation that uh, no one could park by the stadium because <laughs> because there is a USC game at night. 
which is, I guess, one of the perils of trying to plan uh, a, bi- a massive sporting event on six days' notice. Um, because if LAFC had lost, then they they wouldn't have had to plan that. Uh, but yeah, it was one of the. It, it's cool that when MLS has a big event like that, and they're going to come out of the box next year reportedly and do um, LAFC, LA Galaxy at is it SoFi Stadium or at the Rose Bowl? They're going to play it. Yeah, at the Rose Bowl, they're going to like. I think Apple and MLS are going to try and create these big events um, and more and more. So whenever. MLS can sort of get that out of the sports world uh, or out of the soccer world headlines. That's great. And, you know, couple that in in terms of heartbreak with uh, the Philadelphia Phillies losing the World Series the same night and going through six straight hours of pure sporting heartbreak. uh, You feel for the people of Philadelphia uh, because uh, according to Elias, they are the first uh, sports city to have lost Two champ, two major championships on the same day in the history of sports. So, oh, wow. uh, can can only imagine how difficult that night must have been in the city of brotherly love. Wow, yeah, I mean, just such a memorable event. So, yeah. congratulations, MLS, on that great way to end the season. Let's talk about another crazy game: Leeds United from being down three one against Bournemouth at home to winning four three. In a crazy second half, Jesse Marsh has gotten two or six points out of the last two games at Liverpool and out of this Bournemouth game. And they were basically the opposite of simple. Like every game, I I tweeted this, every game with Leeds United is a journey. And (laughs) I I don't know if it's sustainable, but it's, it's pretty incredible to watch. Yeah, and uh, I, I stole a joke format from uh, Kevin Clark of The Ringer, who every time the Seattle Seahawks play in the NFL, he retweets himself saying the Seattle Seahawks have literally never played a normal game. <laughs> and it's usually in the midst of some chaotic thing that they're doing. And I think Leeds have frankly been in that territory for a very long time. I remember when they first came up with Bielsa in charge, it was like, oh, yeah. I need to I need to make a point out of watching this because either they're going to get hammered 6-1 by Manchester United or they're going to pull off some crazy upset or they're just running all over the field, like the, the chaos and the energy of it. I guess in some ways, while moving away from the Bielsa model, this was sort of the next level of chaos down <laughs> from Bielsa. And... I, it's sort of, I think, unsustainable what's happened in these last two weeks. This like this can't be a model for how Jesse Marsh is going about trying to win games at Leeds. There has to be a, nor- a more normal way to do this. And I actually think, in a, on a, in a serious point, I was, in- I was interested. So I watched uh, online last night the BBC match of the day. Uh, where they sort of like run the highlights, and those are the games that actually don't get seen by the country on TV because they're blacked out. And so they run the highlights. And Gary Lineker does an in-studio interview with uh, with Jesse Marsh. And he said, your critics are saying that your team is too aggressive, that this is why you're defensively exposed, and this is why you're, you're conceding too many goals. What do you say to that? And Jesse Marsh said, I don't think our problem is that we are too aggressive. I think our problem is that we are not aggressive enough <laughs> and that we don't actually go out and press to win the ball high enough and win second balls and be in positions to, to go and, and and take advantage of moments. So I think that Jesse actually, I think, would feel that he has to coach his press better and get his team playing forward better so that they can win the ball back, keep it, and then do their thing. But he, you know, the, the chaos, I think, it gets solved by furthering their development as a pressing team rather than, all right, 
you know, these games have been a little crazy. Let's back off a little bit. I kind of admire that even in the face of English pragmatism, which is sort of like their calling card as a culture, as a soccer culture is pragmatism. He said, no, I'm not backing down. I want to double down on my methods. I mean, we've said this before though, right? That, yeah. that Marsh has has not just drank the Kool-Aid on this. He he has an IV of the Kool-Aid well, constantly going we, into him. We should, we should call it the Red Bull. You know, <laughs> he's more Red Bull than Red Bull yes. at this point. And, and that's why he's no longer a Red Bull. But like he is all in or whatever beyond all in is on the way he wants to play. And, he, and a lot of coaches disagree with that, by the way. I, I've had plenty of coaches say to me, you know, how can Jesse Marsh be so much about what you do when you don't have the ball? That's like, that's totally messed up. But whether you think it's messed up or not, he is all in on it. He has gone down that path. He has taken it to the fullest extent. The defensive lapses, like, were were pretty awful in this game for yes. Leeds that got them into for this. Both hole. teams, really. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it, like it was it, it was a chaotic game in an MLS sense, but like it was just some pretty shambolic defending that led to some of these goals that were scored against Leeds. And yet it's so obvious week after week that the Leeds players have not quit on Jesse Marsh. And actually it's the opposite. They are always fighting and they got back into this game. You felt like they could win it. They won it. Um, and it's, if you're a Leeds fan, I can only imagine what this is like. I'm a Jesse Marsh fan. So like, it, it's crazy for me to watch. Um, Let's talk about Tyler Adams and, and Brendan Aarons and the two Americans, because I feel like Tyler Adams is in the form of his career right now. I think he is Leeds' best player. I thought he was fantastic again on Saturday. And I think for the U.S., that's a great sign heading into the World Cup. Brendan Aronson, I think, is doing pretty well. He's he's playing a ton, which is great. Um, I also think and this is something he's talked about wanting to get more goals and assists on the scoreboard for him to be that type of contributor. And I don't think he's doing that. Yeah. I, I think in these last couple games in particular, he hasn't been terribly goal dangerous. I will go back to, I think it was their game away at palace, which they eventually lost. He hit the post and it resulted in a chance for Leeds. So uh, I think he has had his moments, but I think, even, you know, going back to his time in Philadelphia, it wasn't always lighting up the box score. He's right. not always been a huge box score guy. He's an off-the-ball guy. At Red Bull Salzburg, it was the same thing. So I, I, I do think that it's another level for him to jump. We also have to remember he is very young, and he will, and he will continue to develop. But you're right. I think if he... Uh, Jesse March clearly trusts him implicitly, but in order to retain that the, the place in that team, considering you know Luis Sinistera eventually is going to get healthy, Jack Harrison uh, eventually you'd think that he'd want to play both Patrick Bamford and Rodrigo at the same time, and Rodrigo has been occasionally played as a winger. I mean, we'll see you know if Bamford ever gets to sort of fully uh, his his form again. But um, Crescencio Somerville is playing well. Uh, uh, Wilfried Inyota, I think is how you say his name, Inyota. Inyota. Yeah, so so he's he's playing uh, all of a sudden now, and and Jesse likes to bring through young players as well. Sam Greenwood scored. Joe Gelhart can play. So there's a lot of attacking options, and I think if Aronson is going to lock down that position in the middle of the field, you're right. He he has to he has to bring more goals and more assists to his game. Yeah, I also notice. I mean, whether it's Bamford or Rodrigo, they're not good finishers. 
<laughs> and that's harsh, right? For, for to say that about a forward, but like we talk about how the underlying data shows, even when they were not getting results, that leads has been creating chances. And they need better finishers because how many times now have we seen Rodrigo, who admittedly has scored some goals this season, but how many times have we seen him get into a position for a great scoring chance and just have a terrible shot or Bamford have a terrible first touch and they just got to get better. And so we'll see if those guys can in particular. We'll see if they get into the market at all in January. Everyone knew that Leeds wanted to get a, buy a striker last summer, that they wanted to buy a left back. They didn't do it. Um, I think they've suffered because of that. Somerville has been a, a, a real scoring surprise in a positive way. I think he's scored in four straight games now. Um, Nonto is making you wonder with his performances the last two games, why he hasn't been playing more earlier in the season. This is a guy who plays for the Italian national team. I think he's 19. Um, his plus minus is crazy good over these two games. Plus minus per 90. Is that a stat? Um, <laughs> and, and so like, I think there's pieces for Jesse Marsh to work with here. And I think he's going to keep his job, which we weren't sure about a couple of weeks ago, at least for the next couple of months, you know, through the, through the, the world cup break. But like even yesterday in this game, when they went down three, one, and they were getting booed by their own fans at halftime, you're back. There's just too much chaos. Like you're back thinking, Oh, maybe he will get fired. Yeah. And that's tough. That's gotta be tough. Right. And we, we talked about it before, but he just looks like he wears it. And yeah. it, it, you know, the, the celebrations again were tremendous. He, he sort of is a very magnetic character. I think the English cameras have taken to, Je to, to Jesse Marsh. I think directors like to go to his reactions. They know that they're yeah. getting some gold when they cut to Jesse Marsh on the touch line. He's become, I, I don't know, maybe this is my, my myopic American prism, but I think he's actually become like kind of a big deal over there that like in some ways leads is through the prism of Jesse Marsh at the moment. It's sort of <laughs> his team. Uh, I, on, on your point, Ree Bamford and, and Rodrigo, I do think that now Rodrigo certainly scored more under Mars than he did under Bielsa, but yeah. Bamford has taken a significant, a significant drop off and Bamford has only ever really scored under Bielsa. And I wonder if for as chaotic as Bielsa's teams were defensively, they had a very coordinated plan of attack. And I don't know if you can say the same thing for Jesse Marsh's team. It's a lot of get the ball through balls, look forward, crosses like high energy all, all the way through as the Bielsa teams had a measure of composure when they had the ball. And I wonder if Bamford is still adjusting to the chaos and not really having a cool head once he gets into finishing positions. But look, the the Red Bull teams always do pretty well on XG. And I don't mean Red Bull in terms of like, you know, actual Red Bull teams, but that style, that style yeah. always kind of looks good against the numbers, but sometimes they don't always deliver because for whatever reason, right? Players don't have enough composure in front of goal. You get like the one big chance that you give up is one where your press has failed and the, the you know, long ball has beaten you in behind and the chance is very easy to go and score. They're not very good sort of defending in a low block or defending in their own area, which I think is Leeds' biggest problem right now is they don't defend very well in their own box yeah. uh, when, when they have to bunker in and defend. And I know that Jesse Marsh's answer would be, I don't want my team to defend in their own area, but at a certain point, you have to address defending in your own area because you're just not good enough as a team, right? Leads do not have good enough players to sort of dictate that, that the other team is not playing in their own box. It's the Premier League. It's going to happen. 
So I, I just think that there's things for them to figure out. A couple other big games in the Premier League this weekend. Chelsea nil, Arsenal won. And I'm going to say this right now. For me, this is the game that has pushed me farther along to think Arsenal can win the title. Because their schedule has been very easy. And they've performed well. They've gotten great results. But they haven't played that many decent to good teams on the road. And they lost at Man United. And so Chelsea's going through a rough patch here, right? They've gone, I think, four games now without a win, two straight losses in the league. And that was after Graham Potter had gotten off to a really good start, right? He didn't lose for a long time in Champions League or Premier League. But Chelsea's struggling, losing at home to Arsenal, and Arsenal remains top of the league. And, and this was a performance, I thought, that Arsenal deserved to win. Completely agree. And I think it's really important that, as you said, Arsenal played their style, like won in their way against high-level opposition on the road. Because we've seen Arsenal win games. I, I was really impressed by their back-to-back home wins against Spurs and Liverpool. Um, and I think at that point, I sort of believed in the credibility of Arsenal's title challenge. Okay. But I think you're right. It, it's sort of further development. I know a few Arsenal fans in my life sort of use today as that benchmark of, oh, I actually do believe in Arteta and I, and I believe in in Arsenal now because I didn't believe in them before. That being said, I, I do think you can see what Chelsea's future will eventually be. And what ultimately, like you see all these clubs pay lip service to the notion of, quote, projects, where we are starting from a beginning point and we will eventually reach an end point. And I think you have to give Arsenal, as a club, huge credit for backing this project because it's with a first-time manager. There were several moments where they could have said, Uh, this isn't going great. And he's having personality issues with players like Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And they backed Arteta and got rid of Aubameyang rather than backing the player that they're paying a ton of money to. And so I think you have to give Arsenal as a club a huge amount of credit for basically saying, like I've heard a a cliche, I forget from who, that a bad plan that's stuck to is better than a good plan that isn't stuck to. (laughs) And I think like Arsenal... It might not have always been the best plan. They could have backed maybe a different coach, but they at least said, we're sticking it out with this guy. We believe in this guy and he's going to turn things around. And it's so impressive watching their manner of performance that Graham Potter has not had the chance to coordinate this Chelsea buildup and this Chelsea attack. And Arsenal took advantage of every weak point and every pressure point in this team that is clearly massively struggling without Reese James in the side, that is clearly struggling to figure out who they are, and Arsenal can prey upon that. And it's been a long time since you can say Arsenal can prey upon opposition of this quality with as many good players as Chelsea can throw on the pitch because they just know where their weaknesses are and they have the ability with their players and with their system and with their tactics to take advantage of a team that's struggling. And even though the game only finished 1-0, Arsenal, I thought, were soundly above uh, Chelsea on this day. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right with all of that. And just, you know, more pieces of evidence as the season goes on that Arsenal is is good enough. Um, you know, let's see how they do head to head against Man City. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Um, and But it's it's the only opponent that they haven't I mean they, they did lose to Manchester United away, but uh it's the only major opponent in England that they haven't really tested themselves against and they've passed most every test that they've taken so far. Yeah. 
No, just a huge credit to Mikel Arteta and, and, and that team right now. They're doing what they need to be doing. Um, Spurs won, Liverpool two, another big game on Sunday. Midweek, Spurs got the result they needed to advance in Champions League at, at Marseille. This is a discouraging loss and an encouraging win for Liverpool, which needs the points, by the way, to have any shot. And maybe we've talked about this. Maybe they don't even have a shot to for the title at this point. But three big points. Mo Salah gets two goals, very clinical in the best of Mohamed Salah's sort of tradition. Um, Kane with a nice goal to get back in it late after the subs were made. Kulisevsky coming back on for the first time in a while post-injury makes a difference with the assist. Um, but disappointing for Spurs here because if you're going to think you have a shot to win the league, you need to win games like this. Yeah, well, and it's also, I mean, not even just about winning the league. I think at this point you have to start looking down. And this was a six-pointer that could have really defined Liverpool's ability to qualify for the Champions League. I know it's a bit early to start thinking about that, but they entered the game 10 points off the pace. If they lose, they're 13 points off the pace. And also, if they lost, they would have been something... Yeah, they would have been 18 points off Arsenal and 16 off of Manchester City. That's... Yeah. It seems like... It's like league season over, and you're sort of prioritizing the Champions League at that point. But I, I wanted to talk about Spurs, because if you look at their recent history in terms of the games that they've played again entered halftime 2-0 down today they entered halftime against Marseille 1-0 down right. and very near the end of the first half had yet to register a single shot on target against Bournemouth they entered halftime 1-0 down and eventually gave up another goal just after halftime against Sporting in the Champions League they entered halftime 1-0 down against Newcastle they entered halftime 2-0 down they don't start games well and I think it's because of Antonio Conte's negative tactics. I think mm. the, the way that he sets his teams up to play and, and win titles. I was talking to Andres Cordero, who does Serie A for CBS, and I, I asked him when he was winning, when he won the league title at Inter, was it, was it this negative? Was it this bad? He's right. like, it's always been this way. At Juve, it was like this. At Inter, it was like this. I don't remember his Chelsea teams as that negative. I, I remember them as a little bit more enterprising. I could be wrong. And I, I could go back and rewatch. But I remember when they were winning those games, they at the very least had you know Diego Costa up top. And the, the wing backs love to get forward. And, and I, I remember sort of an attacking formula that made sense to me. But it seems as though Spurs only come out to play when they're being when they're behind. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they demonstrate the flair that we know that they're capable of. And the thing that's frustrating to me is that Tottenham Hotspur played such joyous football under Marie, uh, under um, uh, Mauricio Pochettino. And it's sort of sad to watch this group of players over the course of Mourinho and Nuno and Conte sort of be completely sapped of their ability to play creatively and play with flair. And it's been several years of this. I know that there are, there's a better team lying inside of there, and it kind of makes me sad to watch them play. And I, I don't know if Conte is going to have the sort of success that has that sort of has to be there in order to justify the process. The process is ugly. The fans don't really like it, but you deal with it if you win something. But to now all of a sudden be eight points off the pace to you know constantly be going behind in games. I, I don't, it's starting to get to the point where it's not really justified, even though they topped the Champions League group and they're in the top four. Yeah, but it was it was very 
transactional, pragmatic, even in Champions League. It was frustrating to watch the midweek against Marseille, where at halftime they were down, they were out of the Champions League, and they came out in the second half and performed a heck of a lot better. And, and it's like what we've been talking about here. If you're capable of doing that, do it from the start. You know, like your fans want that. Your players probably want that. What are you doing? And, and that, that method doesn't work. It clearly doesn't work. Yeah. I, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be curious to see if like Conti gets under enough pressure with results like this one to cause him to change things up a little bit from the start. Um, but maybe that's not him, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, this is a guy who with Inter, you know, he's, you know, with Chelsea, he's won league titles. He's, he's done it. Um, so yeah, I, I, Spurs is a weird team. I, I, I think they could be more than they are. They're dealing with injuries now. Son, I maybe out of the world cup, uh, with the injury he got against Marseille, which is, if that's the case would be a huge frustration. Um, but finally got Kulisevsky back today. Richarlison is out as well. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. But you know, Liverpool is being uh, starting to look like Liverpool again, uh, at times. And, you know, we get a bigger sample size and they start performing like more like what we've expected from them. I think Virgil van Dijk has been better in recent weeks than he was earlier in the season. Mohamed Salah is performing, getting goals. Um, so I, I'm still not totally bought in on Darwin Nunez, but he'll get there maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, not every player hits the ground running and is, you know, as brilliant as we see other signings, including Van Dyke, including Luis Diaz, who was great in, in the second half of last season. It's not always that simple. I, I think Nunez, if you look, he's another underlying numbers player where his process doesn't always look great. But then at the end of the game, you go, man, he should have scored way more than, than he did. So uh, it's good for Salah. And also, they get the fortune of, I think, being apart from each other for a month. And also, I think a lot of, like, they're probably the team, the best team that is dealing with the fewest World Cup absences. Mm -hmm. uh, when you think of, like, particularly up top in the in, in the attacking areas. No Diaz, no Jota because he's out injured, uh, no, no Salah. So they have some players that, thankfully, will not be going to the World Cup from their standpoint. Let's talk about the U.S. men's national team. Wednesday is the World Cup roster release here in New York City. I will be at Brooklyn Steel for that event. Uh, ESPN will be broadcasting that event. Curious to see which players come. I assume some of the MLS guys uh, will be there. The question for me is, are there going to be any surprises in your mind? And what would a surprise be? So I think if you sort of go position by position, you would... I think ask yourself, well, what what are the areas that that would constitute? So, like for me, let's say in in, in goalkeeper, like you pick Gagas Lonina instead <laughs> of maybe an experienced hand to be your third goalkeeper. Uh, it would be maybe there's a player that's off the board other than Joe Scally that would go as the backup left back, which is a possibility. Um, Sam Vines is not going because he's out due to an injury that he picked up in Belgium. Anthony Robinson is obviously your number your number one, but does Greg Berhalter say, I'm not taking a backup left back. Sergio Dest is my backup left back, and I take you know Reggie Cannon, DeAndre Yedlin, and those are my fullbacks. Is Tim Ream his backup left back? I don't know. Uh, you have Tim Ream there as maybe a possibility. And then there is sort of the, the injury question of, is it Luca De La Torre or is it Christian uh, Roldan who, who, who goes and plays in, in the center midfield. But I think really the question, the questions that I think will produce a surprise is ultimately this, the striker position. 
Now, if you maybe project, I'm going to say it's Pepe, it's Sargent, and it's Jesus Ferreira. But there are several other options that could potentially constitute well. Wow, you know, Pepe is playing well in Holland. Maybe he didn't make it. Uh, Josh Sargent played well in the championship. His run at the end wasn't enough. All, he all of a sudden changed his mind about PFOC. But I think it would be pretty surprising to me if we haven't figured out Greg Berhalter by now. If we haven't figured out who are the players that he likes, how does he want to play them, and like I actually will in the end be more surprised if on opening day it's it's Matt Turner in goal instead of Zach Steffen. I will be surprised if Matt Turner starts because he very clearly has picked his way of playing. And I'm not even necessarily saying that that's wrong, but I think the surprise to me will be if Greg Berhalter isn't entirely predictable about how he handles all this because he's signaled for two years how he wants to handle this. When in doubt, go with Greg Berhalter going with his guys. Yes, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I think it's a pretty, a pretty stable way to approach all this. And so for me, it would be a surprise if Tim Ream gets called in. I would like to see Tim Ream get called in, in particular because Chris Richards isn't even training yet. But it sounds like there's a thinking that Chris Richards has, uh, even in this state, a higher likelihood of being on the roster than Tim Ream which is kind of wild. I mean, I watched Tim Ream this weekend, Captain Fulham against Man City, a game they were sort of unlucky to lose two to one. Um, he admittedly did get beat by Julian Alvarez, Alvarez for the first goal. Yes. Yeah, yeah, beat by Alvarez. And, and by the way, Jedi Robinson with the penalty on the yeah. game-winning yeah, goal. Yeah, yeah, It wasn't a great um, day for, for American <laughs> Fulham players. But they're playing against Man City. They're right. starting against Man City. They're competing and almost getting a result against Man City. And most importantly, starting together. Like, if you want right. to, like, you're looking for associations, combinations that have been together, why wouldn't you pick a left back and a left center back that play together every week? Wouldn't that help you at least develop some sort of cohesion when you really only have a week to get together before your first game? And if, if, and if Greg Berhalter's concern about Tim Ream is he's not fast enough, that Aaron Long is faster than Tim Ream, Fulham played Man City in the Premier League this weekend, and Tim Ream was the captain who they chose to play. And we've talked about this before, that this Tim Ream in the Premier League has been better than the previous Tim Reams we've seen in the Premier League. There's a reason he's getting picked. There's he a reason he's Erling Haaland uh, several goals, he including one where well against Erling Haaland. Yeah, there was a great cross in from the left side. I forget who put it in. I want to say it was Foden, but it, it's sort of the way that the ball was flighted. It just looked like man, Erling Haaland is going to attack the shit out of this ball and head it in for a goal. And Ream was in the way. I was like, whoa, Tim Ream, my God, where did that come from? But that's the thing here. It's funny because maybe about a month ago when PFOC was scoring goals, and he's on a bad run of form, by the way, mm-hmm. and, and Union Berlin's busy losing 5-0 to Leverkusen. <laughs> and so they're coming back down to earth. But like a month ago, PFOC was the guy where you're like, I can't believe this guy's not on the team. He's on the first place team in the Bundesliga. Now the, the one you're like, I can't believe he's not on the team is Tim Ream. Which is wild considering... I remember in during the Nations League in Denver, I was like, I would be totally fine if he never played for the U.S. <laughs> ever again because <laughs> he put in a couple of shockers in that tournament. And it would like you, I, I listened to Guardian Football Weekly, and uh, as recently as like six months ago, for them having a shocker as a defender was called a Tim Ream because he had done it so, so many times for Fulham. So this has not always been a universally popular player. I, w- I was talking to a few friends of mine who are not Tim Ream fans, and they're like. I, I like they're they're like whispering in the chat going, I think I want Tim Ream to go to the World Cup. 
And like he, and to be fair, this first half of the Premier League season has completely changed the perception of him. He's playing in the English top flight and giving a good account of himself for a team that's in the top half. That Those are incredible credentials for a U.S. center back, considering that the other U.S. center back's credentials are not that great. Right, right. So... It, it's still most likely Walker Zimmerman and Aaron Long are going to be your starters. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and your backups will be Cameron Carter-Vickers and uh, Chris Richards would be my guess. Who's hobbling along or what? Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and like, I'm going to make a prediction. I think out of one of the first two games, one of those two center backs, probably Long, is going to not start and then not start for the remainder of the tournament because he will have had a game bad enough. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. There's just something that doesn't give me much confidence about that position. Oh, goodness. I I, I do look at the center forward position and I'm kind of like, um, I, I think Pepe, who's had a, a pretty good run in the Netherlands recently, will be there. I think Berhalter has wanted him all along and, and uh, now has ammo. Uh, to, to bring him in. Ferreira was not good down the stretch in MLS. I still think he's going to be on the team. Um, and Sargent is back, so he's not hurt. And if I had to pick someone there, it would probably be him at this point. Um, you know, like we do have some injury issues. So Luca Della Torre, they had announced at Celta Vigo that he was going to be out for a couple of weeks, but he's already back training if he's able to train, I, I do expect him to at least be on a 26-man roster. Um, you know, Weston McKenney is a concern, obviously. Juventus said he'd be out for about two weeks. Um, but that's not a question mark there. If he if like if there's any chance that he'll be healthy for the for any part of the World Cup, Weston McKenney will be on the team. Uh, Matt Turner was back in uniform, at least, on the weekend for Arsenal. So that's a good sign for him, even though I do agree with you. I think that Burhalter would prefer to start Zach Steffen. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll be a good sign for Turner's candidacy if he can play in the Carabao Cup on Wednesday night. Uh, Arsenal are playing Brighton. I imagine they'll make a ton of changes uh, from the team that played against Chelsea uh, yesterday. But... I, I, I imagine that Matt Turner is, uh, I, I just I just think he's the underdog to be the starter. And Stefan is at least getting a run of starts. Uh, I, I have not exactly been following Middlesbrough's form in the championship. Uh, occasionally, there are lowlights of his where he tries to play sweeper-keeper and it doesn't always work out. Doesn't seem to be the best from crosses or from set pieces. But uh, I, I will not confess to have seen a ton of Zach Stefan so far this year. But I think he has the confidence of the coach. And that has clearly been the way that he's gone about managing this team. Uh, so I will imagine that it's going to be Zach Stefan in goal against Wales on Monday, November the 21st. We'll have all sorts of discussion about this for our Thursday podcast this week because we'll record on Wednesday night after that roster is released here in New York. So that should be an interesting one. Uh, let's wrap up our discussion here with Gerard Piquet retiring from the sport midseason at yeah. Barcelona. And this is a guy who I've spent a lot of time with over the years and gotten to know. Uh, I think he is one of the defining center backs of this era. And you look at how many trophies he's won, both with the Spanish national team, with the World Cup, the European Championship, uh, Champions League with Barcelona, Club World Cup with Barcelona. Um, and I've had this discussion with interviewees 
like Vincent Company or Paolo Maldini. And they all basically agree there are fewer world-class center backs today than there were 20, 30 years ago. But Gerard Piquet is one of them. And um, you know, he'll probably be like president of FC Barcelona before long. So we're gonna continue to see him. But what do you make of his career and also just like this kind of weird timing of this decision? Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of surprised that his career sort of died at the doorstep of Xavi, right? Considering their their arc together. Um, it was sort of determined at a certain point that he was not going to be a regular part of the team. If you read Sid Lowe's piece for ESPN, you do sort of wonder how much the Barcelona desire to get salary off their books was part of this. Um, it, it was never specifically mentioned that, you know, Barcelona ordered the code red or they said to PK, please get off our salary books. But you you wonder how much th- that pressure played a role. It was sort of alluded to in that story. Uh, you, you know, PK has said, I don't want to end my career on the bench. And so uh, he was, he's been on the bench a lot. At times, holding midfielders have been picked ahead of him at center back. And so you wonder if it was sort of mentioned to Pique that he's he's not going to be a starter for this Barcelona team anymore. This is a boyhood fan of the club. This is one of the cool stories in world soccer because you don't often see that boyhood fan of the club stick around for the whole career or have, you know, sort of a positive reputation with the club for the whole of his career. And Pique was starting to get a few whistles uh, from the Barcelona fans. And I can't imagine he wanted to go out like that. But I, I am surprised he was, I believe, named to Spain's provisional list for the World Cup, which I think is their 40-man squad. Uh, so I, I'm surprised that it happens given that context. I'm I'm surprised that he didn't want to try something else, whether it was a move to MLS or a move to the Premier League or a move to you know Italy even. I feel like he's someone who could have maybe thrived in an Italian setting, but um, he just decided to call it quits right in the middle of the season. It sort of makes me wonder if... You know, there's a lot going on right now with his divorce with Shakira. There's a lot of. He never you know, got married. Well, right, right. I guess breakup. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. The, the, yeah, the, the the breakup with Shakira. It's being sung at him. <laughs> you just don't know if, like, he might have just reached a breaking point of I'm miserable. I'm not playing, and fans are making fun of me, and this is not how I want to go out. Let's go out in some kind of cool, triumphant way where all of a sudden I'm the subject of news stories for three days, and I get to play in front of the fans for the last time, and that's the end of that. Uh, but. It was. It really caught me by surprise. And you're right. This is one of the defining players of this generation because he was in the middle of so many big things at club and international level. Yeah, I mean, pretty precipitous drop off because he was still playing a lot last season. And this season, playing very little, not even really the backup. And in Barcelona, was paying him a lot of money. He had taken a, a cut to some extent, but they were still paying him a lot. Um, he's always had other stuff going on. You know, he. Literally, when Rakuten was their shirt sponsor, he brought that company to the club. So, you know, he's he was literally part of the business deal. This is kind of like borderline shady, making money off of the Spanish Super Cup taking place in Saudi Arabia when he was playing it, which is crazy. Um, you know, he's been involved in the Davis Cup in that whole financial operation. So this is a guy who's already an active businessman in the sports world, video games, all sorts of stuff, making millions and millions of dollars doing all of that. And that has, that's not income from his playing, Um, you know, was literally a member of FC Barcelona from the day he was born. 
because his family is well connected in, in, in Barcelona. Um, and in my experiences over the years interviewing him, there were a few I did. And I visited him in Barcelona in 2014 before that World Cup. And um, I just, you know, always enjoyed speaking to him because he had a, a really thoughtful approach to the way he played the position, but also a real respect for the game. Um, you know, I, I remember I posted a picture on my Instagram today about that I, I tracked down from 2014 when I visited him and he had a framed um, there was two jerseys, a Spain jersey and a Netherlands jersey from the World Cup final. And uh, he had cut the nets like they do in basketball when you really? win a championship. And so he, it's funny because in the framed part, it was like a, a small section of the net from the final in Johannesburg. And, but actually in the moment, and I remember this, he cut down the entire net. And so he was like literally walking off the field, looking like a fisherman with a giant fishing net. <laughs> and he's also a basketball fan. So like, I guarantee you that was connected to that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, just a really, uh, really interesting guy. Uh, so I will miss Gerard Piquet. I, I'm sure I, the, the player, I, I think we will see him a fair amount uh, in the years to come with, with FC Barcelona. And he couldn't be a worse president than the way that they've acted over the past summer. So, uh, you know, he may even come at a, at a time to help rescue FC Barcelona if their reckless behavior over the past summer uh, comes to haunt them. Yeah, and, and you sort of wonder uh, what his sort of level of celebrity will continue to be because this was probably, despite the fact that he, I mean, he's a center back playing at one of, you know, uh, World Cup champion, European champion at Barcelona. But, I mean, center backs are usually not the ones that draw the headlines. And he was always a massive figure uh, in, in the world of celebrity by being in a famous celebrity couple. And he sort of is an outsized figure considering, uh, you know, what the position is and generally what uh, the, the star level is. So in, in my sort of thinking about this i'm sort of wondering like will he sort of continue to be like one of the word association you know center backs names you think of in the world game how will he continue to i guess sort of stay relevant in his in his post-playing career good stuff chris thank you very much thanks grant now here's my interview with adam crafton our guest now is the athletics adam crafton he has a new podcast series being released on Monday, November 7th, called Away From Home, in which he embedded with Ukrainian team Shakhtar Donetsk as it played in the Men's UEFA Champions League, while Russia's invasion of Ukraine has continued. I've listened to the first two episodes, which are extremely well done. Adam, congratulations on this, and thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I think the best way to start would be to ask you to explain to our listeners, what is this podcast series? Yeah. So, I mean, as, as everyone will know, um, earlier this year, late February this year, Russia launches a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And for, for, you know, for several months, Ukrainian football, um, I suppose, becomes the least of everyone's priorities in, in Ukraine. The Football League is suspended um as as ukraine attempts to kind of keep itself keep itself alive during those months and then in the summer um the decision was taken that ukraine the ukrainian premier league should return um i think this this actually came from the government itself who were who were saying 
you know, we need to show that we go on. We need to show that resilience, that the sporting cultural aspect will remain will remain intact. Um, it's a state, kind of a statement to the world. Um, and it also meant that the team that was placed top of the Ukrainian league when it suspended in February, Shakhtar Donetsk, would go automatically into the Champions League group stage. Um, and we approached Shakhtar probably kind of mid to late August saying, you know, we think, you know, the idea of sort of following how do you run a football club when your country's being invaded? How do you run a football club when in the situation of Shakhtar uniquely, they've not been able to go home since 2014, since the invasion of, um, well, the annexation of Crimea, but also the kind of pro-Russian separatist movement in Donetsk and Luhansk um, at the time. So th- those those were kind of the fascinations about it. And then also on top of that, they lose their head coach in the summer, Roberto de Zerbi, who ends up now at Brighton and Hove Albion in the Premier League. They lost, I think, 14 players, uh, many of whom were foreign players, you know, who understandably didn't want to go back to a war-torn country um, to play football. But that's also been uh, a fascinating aspect of it, something that we cover I think in the third episode, this idea of you know, Shakhtar actually in a 50 million euro legal battle with FIFA um, over the, the regulations that allowed these foreign players to leave and not just leave, but to leave for free. So there was all these different aspects which we found really interesting. And we we're very lucky that Shakhtar said to us that, you know, they'd be happy for us to follow them. You really did embed with the team. I mean, you've got audio from inside the locker room before a Champions League game. You've got a lot of one-on-one interviews with people throughout the club, players, coaches, directors, uh, journalists from Ukraine. It's really hard to get access like that typically in European football. How did you make that happen? You're absolutely right. It's, you know, in many cases, it's it's borderline impossible uh, to, to get that kind of access. Where... where... Where we, were, where we were very fortunate, and I suppose where, where Shakhtar are very unfortunate, is they are in a position at the moment where they really, really want the world to know what's happening to them and the challenges that they face. And I think they, they recognise their role, the, the role that can, sport can play in accessing different audiences. You know, for, for people that maybe have been watching the news over the last few months, where for February and March they're looking at Ukraine and they're like, oh my God, this is the worst thing that I've seen for years and this is all appalling and then it's like anything people get war fatigue right you turn on the news six months down the line you're like oh it's that thing happening in Ukraine still and people stop talking about an invasion and they talk about a war then you talk about a conflict then you talk about a bat- you know battles and kind of both sides participating in battles and things like that and I, I think Shakhtar recognised the-, the role that they can play in you know if you take something that's very very relatable to sports fans the, the, the UEFA Champions League major sporting tournament and show just what the challenge has been for them just to compete in this tournament, never mind actually do as well as they, they turned out to do during the group stages. You have obviously a lot of people speaking English in this. Was that hard to find people or, or was it not? Yeah, I mean, there, was a lot, there was actually a lot of times where before the interview, a player or a board member would say, oh, I'm not sure, you know, if my English will be good enough. And then you sit down and, you know, you warm them up a bit. And actually, uh, I mean, you'll be able to tell better than me, but I think most of it is, is pretty followable for those who have spoken yeah. in English. A couple of, you know, some of them are a bit more broken. There were a few interviews where we've, um, uh, where we've used, for example, we interviewed the mother um, of... Uh, a former Shakhtar trialist, um, someone who tried out to play for Shakhtar as a, as a young teenager and then became a soldier 
uh, when he was 16, 17. He was part of the, the tanks unit early in the war uh, and sadly he was killed. Um, and we spoke to, to his mother, uh, Mariana, Mariana Sapilo, her son was called Vitaly Sapilo, and sh she only spoke Ukrainian. Um, so on the call we had a translator, so that meant I could follow at least what was being said during the call. Um, and then after that we used um, Ukrainian, Ukrainians living in, in the United Kingdom as voiceovers. So as, far, as much as possible, we've always tried to kind of give the, give the voice at least to a Ukrainian to speak English um, when doing those voiceovers, which I think is quite a powerful thing. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the English speaking, I, I think I would say like the key voices um, from the club throughout, throughout the episodes are English speaking um, Ukrainians or Croatians in the, in the case of the head coach, Igor Jovicevic or director of football, Dario Serna, who if you've followed football for a long time, you'll probably remember him as a, as a player at Shakhtar as well. And there's lots of emotional stories just in the first two episodes I've listened to. What are some of the most emotional stories in this series, in your opinion? I, th I think there's a lot and, and you, you can kind of lose track because everybody that you, what I realized very quickly was if you sit down with anyone who has been in Ukraine over the last, over the last year, everyone will either know someone who's been, who is fighting in the army or who has had to leave their home or who has had to leave their country. Um, and, and there was that, that very clear sense of, of trauma, uh, but also an amazing willingness to, to speak about it and explain it. So you know, I'll give you an example. In the first episode, we speak to a midfielder called Ivan Petriak, and he um, he's a Ukrainian guy, and we're about 15 minutes into this interview. This was in the lobby of the hotel before their first match against Red Bull Leipzig. I just said to him, you know, obviously there's been a traumatic impact on your country because of this war, but is there anything on a very personal level that, that you've been affected by? Um, and he just said, yeah, they killed him. They killed my father-in-law. Um, and we've still, you know, we've still never found the body. We've not been able to have a funeral. Um, and, you know, but I think that was the first night I was actually embedded with the, t with the team back in September. And I'm just thinking after that, God, like, there's, I mean, it sounds terrible, but like from a journalistic point of view, the potential of every single time you sit down with someone is that they may have something in incredibly moving to share with you. Um, and equally, you know, I remember the, the very first conversation that you hear in this series is actually with the Shakhtar captain, Tara Stepanenko. And that was from a previous interview that we did uh, back when the war started, when the war broke out or the invasion started in, in the late February. And you can hear in the background his kids in, in, in the like kind of the living room of, of his house as they are around three or four days into the invasion and they're sleeping underground in a shelter. And he is just going, while his wife and kids sleep in the shelter, he basically every so often goes up to a vantage point where he can check uh, to see if any Russians are coming from the sort of the forest that are nearby. And he has a baseball bat, that's all he had, ready in case something was to happen to protect his family. And his neighbour um, had a gun, which they'd, never, which they'd never used, they never really know how to use. But he's like, that's all we had, you know, to protect ourselves. And you're like, six months later, this guy's then playing in the Bernabeu against Real Madrid in the Champions League. And it, and it is, we've really tried to capture that surrealism, right, of those two things going on at the same time because also between all these Champions League games Shakhtar are going back into Ukraine to play in the Ukrainian Premier League so it was, it was really remarkable 
Just from a pure sporting perspective, how impressive was Shakhtar's performance in the Champions League group stage, not having all of the players that had been allowed to leave on free transfers? Yeah, totally. So it was actually one of the things that Shakhtar raised to me before they agreed uh, to, I suppose, to provide the access for this project was they'd kind of seen like fly on the wall documentaries before things like the Sunderland documentary, which is very popular um, and the Arsenal one. And I think what they were a little bit fearful of was, oh, well, what if we lose every game 5-0 because we've lost, all, we've lost all these players and, you know, the team that started against Red Bull Leipzig in the first game, I think there were uh, 10 Ukrainian players in that starting lineup. Um, I think seven of the players were aged 23 or below. Eight of the players came through the Shakhtar youth system in some way. So when you see that starting lineup, you're like, this could get really messy, right? Um, and this could get you know a little bit uncomfortable, um, a little bit uncomfortable to cover. And will they still want to speak to me by episode th- by episode three, episode four? And then like the most amazing thing happened because they went and won that first game four one away from home against Red Bull Leipzig, which was just it was one of the most uplifting sporting performances I've ever seen, to be honest, because the expectation was so low um, before the game, and then what they delivered was was fantastic. And you know, as it went along, they drew home and away against Celtic. They they came within about ten seconds of beating Real Madrid. Um, they were one 0 up against Real Madrid um, in their home game, and then in the ninety fifth minute, Real Madrid equalised. But again, I mean, when you bear in mind all the context, all the travelling. Remember, you can't fly in and out of Ukraine at the moment. So to every Champions League game, they're driving for sort of eight to ten hours, being held at the Polish-Ukrainian border uh, for several hours on end, um, and then delivering these incredible performances. And I remember before that Real Madrid home game, which they drew 1-1, the day before that game, if you remember a few weeks ago in October, uh, the Crimea Bridge was... was, uh, well, there was an explosion there which clearly went down very very badly in Russia uh, with with Vladimir Putin and kind of retaliatory strikes landed on Kiev and that was really the first time for around five or six months that Kiev had come under fire and I remember going to the hotel hotel, um, where Shakhtar was staying in Warsaw before that match against Real Madrid the morning before the game and you walk into this hotel and you just see all these players basically just looking down on their phone messaging their parents their grandparents siblings girlfriends in some cases waiting for a message to check they're okay to check they're you know they're still alive um and you know speaking to they're speaking to their friends who are similar ages who are fighting and and things like that and you're just like and what in 24 hours you're going to play real madrid and I remember the head coach, Igor Jovicevic, just walking down the corridor saying to me, have you seen the news this morning? I was like, yeah, like really bad. And he's just like, and now I'm meant to get these guys ready to play against the European champions. And somehow they did it. Yeah, the one detail, there's so many, but one detail that really stood out to me was something very basic is that they would check their WhatsApp and see if loved ones like when the last time they were on WhatsApp was and, and be able to get some information a little bit from that on whether they were okay or not. Totally, totally. I think that was something um, I explained to Ivan Petrak, who, who, lost his fa- who lost his father-in-law. He was saying particularly for him early in the war, he was actually playing in Hungary last season. So he wasn't in Ukraine at the start of the war, but obviously all his family were. So he was saying how he'd wake up in the morning 
and obviously the first thing I suppose like all of us first thing we all do is check off is check off phones and he'd go on whatsapp and he'd see you know last seen at uh, I don't know if it's seven o'clock where he is last seen at 6.58 you know everyone's okay if it's last seen at 9pm the previous day then you're a bit worried and you're calling and you're checking um, so that was very powerful I think I mean the other thing I didn't mention which I think I, I mean I wasn't actually there because my colleague Joey Durso went to, went to see the club's academy um, so Shakhtar like, like many major European football clubs um, have an academy system where they are developing young talent and then trying to sell it on to make profit but also producing talent for themselves and obviously they had to find a new home for these young players um, so they managed to move around, uh, around 50 to 100 of these boys out of Ukraine and into Croatia where where it's been the academy for the last few months and I mean some of the some of the stuff that Joey Joey Durso my colleague got just incredibly simple statements from these from these young kids about you know the fact that they're they're happy to be safe but they just really want to go home they really want to be with their family and speaking to some of the people whose job it was to look after them uh, during during that period in Croatia was was incredibly powerful as well. I've done a couple of narrative podcast series and they're pretty intense experiences just from a reporting perspective, uh, writing, recording, editing, all of it. Uh, you feel great when you're done. Uh, and I do think the, the format of a podcast, you can, emotion comes through. Um, which is one really nice thing about the platform and and all of that. But how many people put this together? How many, you know, from just a craft perspective? Yeah, so there's two reporters, myself and Joey Durso. Um, producers, um, Abby Patterson has been uh, lead producing it. She's unbelievable. Uh, Jesse, Jesse Howard, Mike Stavrou. I'm sorry, I'm counting in my head as I go along. Um, I'd probably say, yeah, two two reporters probably four to five producers um that, that have worked on this um over over time but i mean the hardest thing about it has been it's been a very constricted champions league group stage because of the world cup this year so a tournament that would maybe normally be between the start of september and december has been between september and the start of november and our view was that we wanted to get this out uh, this week before the world cup so that you know, particularly in that slot between kind of European football finishing and uh, the World Cup coming coming round. So yeah, it's been, the deadlines have been really strict, <laughs> have been really tight around it because we've got three episodes coming out Monday the seventh, and then the final three uh, will come out on the on the fourteenth. Um, so yeah, as I speak to you, I'm currently still writing um, the the uh, the fifth episode. Um, and before we get that uh, all recorded and produced this week, so yeah, it's, it's still going to be a pretty demanding week. But it's but but you're right; it's a very intense thing to work on. Um, I think once you have, you know, the first couple done, you know, in your head, the general format, you know, the kind of voices that you want to keep continuity to, you know, the music that you want to try and use throughout it to a certain extent. Um, you start to get a sense of who sound you know which voices sound good and which are maybe a little bit difficult which are a little bit more difficult uh for an audience to take in so, so yeah it's pretty incredible too because i consume your work even doing other stuff 
during this process of putting this podcast series together, some terrific columns, uh, interviews. And what's really stood out to me about your work is, as we mentioned earlier, access is hard to come by in European football. And like, for example, just one example, your Bruno Fernandez interview was absolutely terrific recently, but rare. You know, you don't see those types of one-on-one -on -one interviews very often. How do you do this? <laughs> That's very nice of you. Um... I mean, something like, I mean, for example, I interviewed Bruno Fernandes recently, but that took probably about 10 months between, first, you know, first speaking uh, to the people that were working with, with Bruno um, about the idea, getting to a point where you have to have quite a lot of luck with this stuff, you know, getting to a point where Manchester United are uh, sufficiently not imploding for, for him to be able to sit down and speak in, in that level of depth. So I think, you know, it was something that we first wanted to do uh, probably pre-season or even you know the first couple of weeks of the season, but then they went and lost against Brighton and Brentford quite heavily. So, you know, he wanted to try and sp he he wanted to do that interview at a point where, you know, there wouldn't be sort of a backlash against him for daring to speak, right? <laughs> which, yeah. which sounds ridiculous, but that's kind of the world we that we live in now. Um, so no, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't cover a specific club, so you know, I don't. I'm not that dependent on access generally. I mean, there's there's certain projects that you do where you clearly need a level of access. You know, something like this. You know, I was actually saying to the guy, the guys yesterday, I was like, if we do future narrative podcasts, do we want it to be one where we're so dependent on kind of other people in terms of, you know, this is when you can speak to that person, this is how you can speak to that person. You know, that's that's a difficult thing. Shakhtar have been absolutely brilliant from that point of view. I think other clubs would be far more controlling, right? Um, <laughs> In my experience, yes. I mean, like, and I, I do think more than ever, you, you run into the interview itself is hard to get. If you get the interview, sometimes PR people want to have control over it, and and that can be frustrating to deal with and, and all of that. And to be fair, we really try not to do, not to get into that much. You know, if you set the terms out before you go in of, mm -hmm. you know, if we're going to do this, this is the way we're doing it. Um, and that control is not is simply not happening, then then everyone knows where they stand. Obviously, I think there's certain moments where you know sometimes you, I think you have to be quite understanding that you know we're talking to like pretty young footballers in most cases, and sometimes people mess up slightly the way that they explain something or things like that. So I think there's a degree of like common sense about certain things. But if I don't know, for example, I interviewed Eric Cantona recently, yeah, and yeah. he. Um, it was actually a really funny moment about halfway through the interview where there was a PR person in the room and um, not a PR person, someone who was working with him on a travel company and Eric Eric was kind of being Eric, right, and saying things that <laughs> would probably upset certain people <laughs> about halfway through this guy was just saying I don't want to sort of get I don't want to sort of cause trouble but Eric kind of checked, that's clearly what you meant to say and you're happy saying it and Eric was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't sit here and say all this stuff and then ask for changes to be made and things like that. And the, the guy was saying, oh, maybe we have a look before it goes out. And, Eric, and it was actually Eric himself was like, ah, don't be stupid kind of thing. So th there's very few people like that, that that are, you know, so keen for things not to be controlled and to be unfiltered. You're absolutely right. that like the sports world now, much like the kind of political world, there are just so many gatekeepers and press officers and it, it reached the point where like, I think probably the vast majority of work that maybe both of us do, we just try not to depend on it anymore. Yeah, like we, yeah. just, we just 
go and report things that we find interesting that tell people the truth about stuff rather than a version of the truth. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, maybe it's also because I own my own writing site now and I, and I don't work for Sports Illustrated and have an audience of 3 million people like I used to, so I'm not getting sit-downs with Lionel Messi anymore, but I'm also doing a lot more, I don't know, like first-person reporting travel. You know, I went to Moldova last year to do a thing on Sheriff when they were doing well in Champions League and going to Qatar before this World Cup. Just to wrap up, you're, are you going to be in Qatar? Because you've, you've done a fair amount of writing and reporting on that too. Yeah, I'll be there from the 18th. Uh, what am I going? 18th of November uh, through to the end of the tour of the tournament. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of despite everything, I'm I'm excited for it. Right? I've never <laughs> I've never covered a World Cup before. Um, that's an exciting thing. Um, you know, I have, I have done a lot of reporting on it in terms of uh, some of the. Uh, workers' rights elements of it, some of the political side of it, some of the LGBT rights. Um, I think it will probably be a better experience than a lot of us expect it to be um, once you're actually there and the football starts. And I know people are probably screaming at this podcast now saying that sounds a lot like sports washing. I don't think it, you know, I had someone saying to me today, like, oh, if you even go to this tournament, then you are in some ways endorsing the tournament. And that's a really interesting debate and conversation right because my view for example as a as a gay journalist is actually if i if i take the view that i i can't go to this that i shouldn't go to this then i'm basically saying that i'm accepting that the world cup is not a place for a gay sports journalist and i think there's something more powerful in saying i'm going to go and i'm going to be myself and i'm going to write about what i want to write about I'm going to report on the things that I care about, that I want to, that I want to report about, um, and I'd kind of, you know, without, <laughs> I don't want this to sound arrogant, but I'd, I'd rather kind of gay sports journalists go that really know what they're talking about in relation to those issues, than rely on other people necessarily to to do that. I'm not saying other people shouldn't write about it if they care about it, but I, I do think that perspective is is in, is incredibly valuable and not not that common across the industry. I agree with you. And, and, you know, I've had plenty of people ask me about boycotts and, and whether that's boycotts from teams, players, journalists, fans. If everyone who has concerns or reservations about this tournament boycotts it, as in from a journalistic point of view, I'm saying, you know, if a, if a team was to decide to boycott it, if players were to decide to boycott it, right, that's a hugely powerful thing. That's a different conversation. If you basically just take the view, the journalists who have reservations about this just don't go, right? Then you basically just leave those who think it's all cool and fine and just want to write about football to crack on with it. So what's the point of that? I also think there's like something very, very important about, you know, you have to differentiate between, you know, maybe a, a government and the people, right? I want to go and I want to meet Qatari people. I want to have that conversation, that engagement, that get to know this culture, right? I think that's that's a really important thing. And I also think it's important anything that we're reporting is informed by experiences that we're having there, that we're not just kind of chucking stones from thousands of miles away about a place that we've not been to and don't fully yet understand. Agreed on all of that. I, I respect anyone who's decided not to watch this World Cup or, or what have you. I mean, but I also have no issues if, if people are going to watch it or cover it. 
Um, should be an interesting uh, five weeks there uh, in Qatar. Adam Crafton has a new podcast series being released on Monday, November 7th, called Away From Home, in which he embedded with Ukrainian team Shakhtar Donetsk as it played in the Men's UEFA Champions League. Adam, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Adam Crafton as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>